And it's a powerful story of hearing how God works, uh, how he provides when we trust him. Uh, And we're going to see that story today in John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there to John uh, chapter 6. As you're turning there, I want to ask, have you ever felt like you weren't enough? You ever felt like you weren't good enough, that what you had to offer wasn't good enough? My freshman year in Bible college, towards the end of the spring semester, uh, I had decided that I had given it a shot, but uh, this wasn't for me. I didn't feel like I had the skills. I didn't feel like I was cut out for, for ministry. I lived in the dorm with people who I knew were destined to be ministers. I, I went to classes with people who were destined to be student ministers and worship leaders and missionaries and, and, and lead pastors, and, and that just wasn't me. And so I had made the decision that I was going to go home that summer and I was going to go back to the drawing board and pursue something else. But uh, late that April, I was sitting in chapel one morning, and this old man in his 80s wearing a suit was preaching that day. And you just have to know, most chapel services were early in the morning, and I was kind of half paying attention most of the time because I stayed up late the night before playing video games in the dorm. And, and, and so for some reason this day, I hung on every word that this man said. And he was sharing about the story of Moses and the burning bush and Moses made all these excuses, but he was available, and, and, and he simply said this. He said, if you make yourself available to God, God will use you. If you make yourself available to God, God will use you. And so the chapel service ended, and everybody left, and I just stayed there sitting in my seat thinking about what I had just heard. And I said, God, I don't know exactly what this means, but I'm going to make myself available to you. God, I don't feel like I have much to offer, but what I have is yours. And you do whatever you see fit to do. My life is yours. And when any time an opportunity comes my way, I'm just going to start saying yes. And I'm not going to be concerned if I feel qualified or not. I'm just going to let you do what you desire to do. And what I learned that day is that a little in God's hand goes a long way. We see that in John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles turned there, would you please stand? For the reading of God's word. John chapter 6, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had had all enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over, by those who had eaten. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
By this point in Jesus' ministry, he has performed a number of signs and wonders, miracles. And these signs, these miracles have attracted large crowds of people following Jesus wherever he goes. And so Jesus and his disciples are looking for a a reprieve. They're looking for some rest, a chance to to debrief and decompress and, and get rejuvenated. And so they get in the boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee and they go over to the opposite shore. They climb up on a, on a grassy green hillside, and just as they sit down, they turn and look, and they see a large, massive crowd coming towards them. What ends up happening is what we know as the feeding of the 5,000. And this miracle, this sign, is the only one other than the cross and the resurrection to appear in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four accounts of the life of Jesus. And the fact that this miracle appears in all four Gospels indicates that this story was of utmost importance in the minds of the first Christian witnesses because it demonstrates very clearly who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And what we see most clearly in this story is that a little in God's hand goes a long way. A little in God's hand goes a long way. I want you to notice, first of all, a little in God's hand goes a long way, so don't be overwhelmed by your problems. Don't be overwhelmed by your problems. When this great crowd starts coming up the hillside, Jesus asked one of his disciples, Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, most likely, the reason he asked Philip this question is because Philip was a local. In Luke's account of this story, we learn that this miracle took place near Bethsaida, which was Philip's hometown. So of all of the disciples, Philip would know the best place where to get bread. He would know the best shops and the the best locations. And and you know this, if you ever go out of town, you go to someplace new, and you want to find out the best places to go, you go ask somebody who's local. Hey, where's the best place to to get something to eat? Where's the best place to stay? Where, where, Where do we need to check out? Well, verse 6 indicates that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. The question we learned was a test to see if Philip knew who Jesus truly was. And unfortunately for Philip, he doesn't pass the test. He actually doesn't even answer the question correctly. Jesus asked him, where shall we buy bread? And Philip can only think in terms of how. He says, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I don't know a whole lot about Philip, but but I just imagine that he's kind of the math nerd in the group. He's the guy who got the, the perfect score on the math section of the SAT because when Jesus asked him this question, Philip starts crunching numbers. He gets out his pocket calculator and, and he realizes very quickly as he looks out at this crowd, they've got an enormous problem on their hands. Because verse 10 tells us that there were 5,000 men. But that's not everybody who was there. That number doesn't include the women and children present. So the crowd easily numbered well above 10,000 people. And for Philip, he is so overwhelmed by the enormity of this problem that he says that even if the disciples could find enough food, they couldn't afford it. Do you notice Philip's logic? He calculates for only a bare minimum. 
He says for each one to have a bite. Not for each person to have a meal. Not for each person to have a sandwich. For, for each person to have a bite. Philip looks at the problem and he goes, this is too big for us. That this is out of our control. We, we can't do anything about this. It's been said before that one man's trash is another man's treasure. Or how about where one person sees a problem, another person sees a possibility? In 1993, the International Shoe Company had a factory and warehouse in downtown St. Louis, and it lay mostly vacant. It was a giant, run-down building that was an eyesore in the city. But where, where many people saw a problem, Bob Cassidy saw a possibility. He purchased the building, and he began construction immediately. What was he constructing? Well, it remained, it remained a secret for several years. People were wondering, what's going on in, in that factory building? And then four years later, he revealed the finished product. It was the City Museum. A 600,000 square foot, completely children's museum. And what makes this museum so unique is not only that Bob Cassidy turned a rundown shoe factory into a world Last October, over fall break, our family uh, drove down to St. Louis and spent a couple of days there. And I was talking to some of our staff, and I told David Diener that we were going to St. Louis, and he goes, you got to go to the city museum. I was like, well, tell me about it. And he's trying to explain what this place is, and I'm just having a hard time tracking with him. He goes, just trust me, you, you got to go there. And I'm so glad that we did. It is unlike anything I have ever been to. There are no maps. There's no maps online. There's no digital maps. There's no printed maps. You go in the place. There are no maps telling you where anything is. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, there's these mazes and, and tunnels and slides. There's a, a giant tree house. There's chain link bridges. There's the world's largest jungle gym. On top, there's this rooftop garden with a Ferris wheel and a school bus. Out in front, there's this exhibit where you can climb through all of these different obstacles to get into an old airplane. And last year, it was voted the second best children's museum in the country. It's, it's remarkable that, that a world-renowned museum was for years a colossal problem that no one wanted to touch. And as I think about that incredible reclamation project, and I think about how Philip answered Jesus' question, it got me thinking. I started to ask myself, I wonder what if? What if we saw the problems that paralyze us as possibilities for God to display his power and provision? Because when Jesus asked, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? The right answer for Philip would have been, Lord, you know where we can get bread. He could have remembered when Jesus turned the water into wine that the first sign that, that Jesus performed, and what Philip could have said is, is, Lord, I know that you're able to provide. Lord, I've seen you do it before, and I'm trusting that you can do it again. But in that moment, all Philip can see is the problem. He doesn't grasp the full significance of his earlier confession in John chapter 1, verse 45. It's when he finds Nathanael and he says, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
it's interesting that Philip identified and confessed Jesus to be the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. He identified him as the coming Messiah, but when the crisis came, when the situation felt overwhelming, he focuses on the problem rather than the provision. He focuses on what's going wrong instead of the one who can provide for them. A little in God's hand goes a long way. So secondly, don't be limited by your perspective. Don't be overwhelmed by your problems. Don't be limited by your perspective. Another one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, enters the scene. He finds a, a young boy with a Hebrew happy meal and brings him to Jesus. It's five small barley loaves and two small fish. Now, these five barley loaves, these weren't like loaves of bread that you would get in the grocery store. These were more like five biscuits or five scones, like crackers. And the two fish, this isn't like a, a big filet of catfish. No, no, this is like two small sardines, okay? He's got a snack with him here. And so Andrew brings this boy in his, his barley loaves and fish to Jesus, but, but I get this, this picture in my mind that, that Andrew is almost embarrassed about this. He's like, hey, I've got this little boy here. He's got some, you know, he's got some biscuits. He's got some sardines. But, I mean, this really can't help, right? Like, here, here's what we got. He can't fathom how this is going to be helpful. Because for Andrew, he can't see past their limited resources. He's thinking purely in terms of what is humanly possible. Albert Einstein said, we cannot solve our problems with the same level of thinking that created them. Translation, Andrew is looking for answers in the wrong places. He's attempting to solve the problem with human resources alone instead of what God can do. And Jesus is inviting him and he's inviting you and me to change our perspective. Andrew's missing that God specializes in working through our weakness. He did it with Abraham and Sarah, Genesis chapter 18. Sarah, who is well past her childbearing years in her old age, she gives birth to a son. But God takes it even a step further. The Messiah entered the world through a virgin. Mark 10.27 tells us that, that God is the God of the impossible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 says that God chooses to use the weak and God chooses to use the foolish to accomplish his purposes. And so if God can bring life through a barren, barren woman, if he can bring life through a virgin, if God can do that, then what do you think he can do with five small biscuits and two sardines? Like Andrew, our perspective is limited. We think, I'm just one person. We're just one church. Like, like what difference can I make? There's an African proverb that states, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. A little in God's hand goes a long way. So third, trust in God for his provision. Trust in God for his provision. I love this phrase in verse 11. It says that Jesus took the loaves. He, he takes these loaves in his hand. 
He gave thanks, and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. If you place a scalpel in my hands, it's merely a scalpel that could cause damage. But when you place that same scalpel into the hands of a surgeon, it turns into an object that can bring healing and life. You put a golf club in my hand, and you better duck for cover. Your house, your, your car, nothing's safe. But you put that same club into the hands of Rory McIlroy or Scotty Scheffler, and you have some of the greatest golfers in the world. A guitar in my hands might cause you to, to cover your ears and make some awful blend of, of noises that make your ears bleed, but you, you put a guitar into the hands of Jimmy Page and you get Stairway to Heaven. A gun placed in the hands of, of a hunter might be used for sport or might be used for obtaining food, but a gun in the hands of a terrorist becomes a weapon of destruction. The question is, why is it that the same instruments and the same tools can bring about such differing degrees of results? The answer is it simply depends upon who's holding them and how they're being used. Here, Jesus uses the ordinary to do something extraordinary. The bread and the fish are multiplied and everyone is satisfied. Philip said that it would take a half a year's wages for everyone to only get a bite. But what does Jesus do? He takes the bread into his hands and at once, he miraculously provides an all-you-can-eat fish and chips lunch. Verse 11 tells us that they had as much as they wanted the multitude is fed, and they're satisfied. But not only did they get as much as they wanted, there was more than enough. Because verse 13 tells us that there were 12 baskets full of bread left over. Scholars have pointed out that the 12 baskets left over represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel represented the people of God. John is reminding us that Jesus is able to meet the needs of his people. That, that all people who belong to God, God is able to provide for. Who is this Jesus? This sign reveals him to be the bread of life, a gracious God who gives us more than enough. In Christ, our hungry souls are satisfied. Jesus' resources are without limit. He can meet our needs and more. In this sign, we see the same gracious abundance that was evident in the provision of more than 150 gallons of wine at the wedding in Cana. But I want to turn our attention to the boy in this story. I want you to consider his role, his response, compared to the other characters. Now think about Philip. Philip points out the enormity of the problem. Andrew points out the meagerness of the resources. But the boy simply gives Jesus his lunch, and Jesus provides for all. I mentioned that all four gospel accounts share the feeding of the 5,000, but it's only John's account that tells us where the five loaves and the two fish come from. Only John mentions this boy in a personal way. Why is that? John is emphasizing that Jesus is the one who provides, 
Jesus is the one who performs the sign, but he uses you and me, he uses people to help carry out his purpose. We're never told the boy's name, and rightfully so because it's not about him. He simply represents all of us who bring what we have to Jesus. Jesus is the point. He's the hero of the story. The boy simply faithfully brings what he has. He takes it to Jesus, and then Jesus satisfies all. It's been said that you may be the only Jesus that someone ever sees. You you may be the, the only Jesus that someone ever sees. You may be the sign that God uses to show someone else that Jesus is the bread of life. So everybody eats and they're satisfied. And there's all this bread left over. Jesus tells the disciples to to collect it all. And he says this, let nothing be wasted. Nothing is wasted. That's a word for some of you today. Whatever you give to God will be used for his purposes. Nothing is wasted. God's provision satisfies and multiplies. He uses it again and again and again. This is how God's economy works. Nothing is wasted. When you give to further God's kingdom, God will use it over and over again to impact countless people for generations. Let me give you just a few examples. Many of you remember a couple years ago, uh, our church went through Rooted a discipleship experience that that helped us embrace rhythms to grow in our faith. I was made aware this past week that there's a church in Ohio that heard about the impact that Rooted had on this church, and they said, we want to have that same impact. We want to grow in our discipleship. We want to grow in our faith. And so they're now doing Rooted at their church because they heard about the impact that it made here. Last year, I was talking with a pastor in southern Indiana, and I was telling him about our four movement here at Bachelor Creek, about how we want to be a people who are for who God is for, that we want to be for Wabash and beyond, that we want to be known by what we're for, not what we're against. And so he listened to our series of messages on four, and he got real excited, and he's like, hey, would you send me those sermon notes? Would you send me all the resources that you have? Because we want to be a church that's for our community." We, we want to have that, that same impact in our community. And they heard what was happening here at Bachelor Creek in Wabash, Indiana. And, and so now there's a church in southern Indiana that's for their community because of, of the impact of this church. Right now, we're in the beginning, early stages of planning and designing a new playground that's going to go in front of our church that's going to be open for our entire community. It'll be a place that, uh, that's easily seen uh, from State Road 15, and, and families and, and parents and kids are going to have a place where, where they know that they can come and, and they can play. It'll be for everyone. And not a dollar that goes into that will be wasted because that playground will let our community know that we are for them. And it's not just going to impact our kids. And it's not just going to impact this generation in our community, but it's going to impact multiple generations. You see, with God, nothing is wasted. Anything that you give to God will be used somehow in some way. I know there are some of you, you have prayed for your one. Your one, that that person in your life that you desperately want to see come to Christ. 
and you've been praying for them for years and years and years. And you're beginning to wonder, hey, man, it doesn't look like their life is ever going to change. I wonder if these prayers are making any difference. I don't see any sign that they're any closer to receiving Christ into their life. And I'm telling you, your prayers are not wasted. Your tears are not wasted. The time you spend opening up God's word and, and spending time reading scripture and, and, and asking God to speak to you through his word, all of that time is not wasted. Your giving is not wasted. Your serving is not wasted. Some of you may be wondering, am I even making a difference? I'm serving in our kids' ministry, and I, I don't even feel like the kids are really connecting with me much. Some of you are saying, I've served as a greeter for a long time now, and, and I'm thinking about maybe, maybe you know, not sticking with it, maybe trying, trying something else. Listen, you have no idea how God ends up using what you give him. But in the same way that Jesus satisfied the entire crowd and collected 12 baskets full of leftovers to feed others, God will use you to impact someone, and then that person will influence someone else because of the love and kindness you showed them. But because you were able to, to give what you had to God and God used you to impact that person, you have no idea the, the ripple effects that that will have on others. You know why? Because a little in God's hand goes a long way. I want to ask you, who do you identify with most in this story? Is it Philip? Where, where all you focus on is the insurmountable problems? Or do you identify more with Andrew, where your focus is on your own limited human resources? I mean, what, what difference can I really make? I'm just one person. Or do you identify most with the boy, where you bring what you have to Jesus and you trust the results to him? The reality is, church, we are surrounded by thousands of people in our community and millions of people in our world who are hungry. Many of them are physically hungry, but even more of them are starving spiritually. And the same question that Jesus asked Philip is the same question that he asks of you and me. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And how are we going to respond? Are we going to respond like Philip where we look at the, the need, we figure out the problem is too overwhelming, and so we just resign, we, we give up in hopelessness? We say, man, our, our, our culture's going to hell and, and things are different and, man, addiction's out of control and there's just too many problems. We, we can't do anything. Or do we respond like Andrew and all we do is look at our own limited human resources and figure out ah, there, there's not enough to, to make any sort of impact? Listen, the magnitude of our problems and the scarcity of our resources don't phase God. God's not up there thinking, man, I, I don't have enough to work with here. The only thing that limits God's work in and through our lives is our unwillingness to give ourselves fully to him. So if we respond like the boy and we give him what we have, then he will do what only he can do. Because I can tell you that our problems and our resources, they won't satisfy the hunger that is deep inside people in this world. Only Jesus will. So we give what we have and we trust God to provide. The challenge today is simple. Give sacrificially so that hungry souls can be satisfied. 
The call on our lives is to give sacrificially. To give sacrificially of our time and our talents. For some of you, that means to, to, to find a ministry to serve in. There are so many opportunities to serve here at Bachelor Creek on Sundays and throughout the week. There are so many opportunities to serve in our community. Give sacrificially of, of your time, your talents. Find needs that you can meet. Maybe it's somebody who's discouraged that, that you can give an uplifting word to. Maybe it's somebody who, who's going in for surgery and you can call and pray with them or you can go and visit them. Give sacrificially of your money and your resources. For some of you, that means to begin to tithe. A tithe simply means 10%. It, it's a, a biblical standard of giving for, for the people of God. But for some of you, that, that, that's a step to take. That's what it would look like to give sacrificially. You do that and you trust that God will provide. We saw that in an incredible way in, in the video of, of Janet and how God provided in her family's life when they began to tithe. For some of you, that giving sacrificially means giving above the tithe. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that the tithe is a finish line. It's a great starting point, but it's not, a, it's not, the, it's not the finish line. And God may be stretching some of you to, to give more sacrificially. But we don't just give sacrificially, we give enthusiastically. We give enthusiastically so that people can see your joy in being a part of building God's kingdom. You give expectantly, trusting that God will do the miraculous. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, and later in his life he was asked how he could explain the impact that his life had had on so many people. And he said this, for the last 80 years, God has had all that there is of William Booth. D.L. Moody once said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. Will you be that man? Will you be that woman? Have you given all of yourself to Christ? Let's pray. God, we, we see so clearly in Scripture, we see so clearly in our own lives that a little in your hands goes a long way. And God, I pray that, that we wouldn't get so caught up in, in, in the problems we're facing and we wouldn't be so limited by our perspective. God, I pray that we would just give ourselves fully to you. God, so often we, we try to reverse roles and we put ourselves in your shoes, but, but God, you are God and we are not. We trust in you and in your sovereign plan to provide for our very needs. And it is so humbling to think that, that you use us to partner in accomplishing your plans. As fragile, as small, as insignificant as we seem. But it's not about how much we have, it's about you having us. And so God, I pray that every single one of us would live lives sold out to you that you would have our very lives. And God, if there's someone here today who's never started that journey and they've never given their life to you, they've never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins, God, I pray today that they would say, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. I wanna go all in for Jesus. You have all of me. I pray, God, that they would surrender to you in the waters of baptism. They would experience the newness of life that comes in a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And God, I pray as a church that we would realize we may just be one person, we may just be one church. But God, if every single one of us were to give ourselves all to you, there is no telling what you might be able to do. So God, we give you our lives. We are yours. We trust that you would provide in Jesus' name. Amen.